0: Matthew chapter twenty six and just going to read one verse, verse thirty. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word, that it is truth, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life, that it is truly a profitable uh, and good for our instruction, uh, for our uh, training and righteousness, for our correction, our reproof. And even as we consider just one small verse and maybe a larger passage later, we just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive this truth of your word and that even this small verse can be instructive to us and guide us and help us in how we can be faithful servants for your glory. And so we just pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Since chapter 21, Matthew has been focused on the last few days of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry before his, uh, before his death and resurrection. And if you think about all that's happened for the disciples well, it must have felt like an emotional roller coaster ride with all kinds of ups and downs and, and many surprising twists and turns. Begins with the excitement of the triumphal entry, and then there is the, uh, the shock of, of Jesus going in and turning over the, the tables of the money changers and cleansing the temple. And that was followed by then the intensity and the exhaustion of, a, of an all-day battle of wits... With the religious leaders, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then the confusion over Jesus' comments about the coming destruction of the temple. And of course then the the great mystery of the signs that Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse about the coming of the end of the age. And then we had the joy of the celebration of the Passover meal. And yet it quickly took on a somber tone with the horrifying revelation that one of Jesus' own disciples would betray him. And then there was the wonder at the institution of a new meal, of which the depths of which they had yet to fully grasp. And so this was a lot to process in such a short amount of time. And and certainly at this point, after all that, they were certainly looking for a time of peaceful retreat. As they now... Go with Jesus out to the Mount of Olives to spend the night. But what about Jesus? Certainly, he too had been through much in those past several days, and of course, this with uh, with the added knowledge of the horrible pain and suffering that was yet to come to him. What was Jesus thinking? Now, it may seem like a purely speculative question, especially since none of the Gospel writers record for us the, the inner thoughts of Jesus at this time. But obviously we know Jesus was thinking and He was experiencing something as He proceeded and processed all these things. But what? Has it been revealed to us what He was thinking? Well, indeed, it has. And we get a clue about it in this passage we come to this morning. This one short verse in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Is he to discover what it was that Jesus was thinking about at this time? We have to consider what it was he was singing. And we can probably think of, of several hymns that might be appropriate for the time. Maybe it was in the garden, right? Since this was, that's where they were headed. They were headed to the garden. Or maybe it was the old rugged cross. Right? Certainly Jesus was thinking about that. Or maybe it was the classic amazing grace. As Jesus was about to secure salvation for undeserving sinners. Well, obviously, it was none of these, because none of those hymns had been written at this time. So what was it? Well, the hymns and the songs of praise that Jesus would have sung were the psalms that we find in the scriptures. And on this occasion in particular, Jesus would have sung the psalms of the Egyptian Halal. And halal simply means praise. And this is the collection of psalms from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And it's these psalms that would have been sung by faithful Jews during the Passover. And especially at the close of the Passover meal, the latter part of this collection would be sung typically Psalm 115 to 118. With the final song being Psalm 118. And... As we think about it, and we've already sung uh, a few psalms from this uh, from this uh, portion of the Psalter and of these the these hallel psalms it provides a good a summary of the events of the Passover. And so for example Psalm 115 exalts the Lord God of Israel as the one true living God who alone is to be worshipped and glorified over against the deaf and dumb false idols. Of the Egyptians. The Lord showed His great power and might over these false gods when He brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. And that was all so that the Israelites would know that they ought not to trust in those false idols, but they ought to put their trust in the Lord God alone. And then Psalm 116 leads the people to give praise to the Lord for His deliverance. In fact, He has saved them from dying in the bonds and chains of slavery in Egypt. And He has now promised them rest as He secures their salvation and their deliverance. In Psalm 117, this deliverance of God's people is to be a witness to all peoples and to all nations... A witness that truly the God of Israel is the one true living God. And so then all should be looking to Him and worshiping Him. And then in Psalm 118, which we'll consider more closely later, this is a, a song of triumph wherein all God's people are led to give praise and thanks for God's covenant love and for His everlasting mercy. And it even, even as it points forward, just like the Passover meal itself, Psalm 118 points forward to a greater salvation yet to come. So, okay, so Jesus sang the Psalms. He sang psalms because he was a Jew he, and he sang these particular hymns because that's what faithful Jews sang at the Passover. So obviously when we ask what was Jesus thinking about, well, he was thinking about the words of these psalms. Now it's true that some people might sing a song especially one that they've sung from their youth and likely have memorized they may sing without really thinking about the words. And we, you know, think about that all the time. We have songs in our head, we sing them, we don't really think about the words. But we just know the tune, we know the words, and we just sing it. Or people sometimes may sing simply as an escape or or distraction from what's going on around them. But this isn't what Jesus was doing here. You see, there was no escaping from what was happening and what will happen to him, simply because the psalms that Jesus was singing speak about him. The psalms, as part of God's revelation in the Old Testament, prophetically point toward Jesus, toward his birth, toward his ministry and his life, and yes, even his suffering and death on the cross. It even points toward his Coming in victory and power and might at the end of the age. In fact, this was the exact truth that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. So that as they would go then forth, as he would send them forth to proclaim the gospel. Well, they would be able to point to the Old Testament scriptures to show how Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And how he would come, how he, how he had come in fulfillment of the scriptures. This is the very instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection from the dead and before he ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. In Luke 24, verse 44, we read this. These are the words that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So all the Old Testament, including all 150 Psalms, speak of Christ. And even in our uh, New Testament reading in the book of Acts, we see a very, an example of this where uh, Peter and John, uh, actually as they're praying, they go, they go and they quote from Psalm 104 and from Psalm 2. And talk about and apply it to their present situation as the rulers of the world would rise up against the Lord's anointed. And that was part of their prayer for boldness because they looked to the promises of that psalm. And so all the Old Testament, all the psalms speak of Christ. But not only did Jesus knowingly sing the psalms which spoke about Him, He also sang them as His very own words. That is because we profess that all Scripture is inspired by God, that is breathed out by Him, and that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is the Word of God come in the flesh, well, the words of Scripture then, all Scripture, including the Psalms, are the words of Jesus. He spoke them. He breathed them out as the second person of the Godhead. Now, beloved of God, this is really such an important truth for us to understand in our time. Especially when people, even Christian people, try to put the New Testament at odds with the Old Testament. Or they may try to pit the words of Paul. And Paul's letters. Against the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Well truth be told. We all need to get out our red highlighter. And mark your whole Bible. As the words and sayings of Jesus. Because that's exactly what they are. And so there is no contradiction. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between Paul and Paul. And between Jesus, because they're all the words of Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, who became flesh. So clearly, Jesus was singing his words about himself, and he was thinking about what he had previously revealed to his people all the way back in the Old Testament about what would happen to Him, even the very events that were now unfolding. Brothers and sisters, this is why we sing the Psalms in worship. Because only when we sing the Psalms, we're not only singing about Jesus, but we're actually singing along with Him. His words... As these are the songs that Jesus wrote. And so before we examine what Jesus was thinking on this night as he sang these, this collection of psalms, and especially as we particularly focus on Psalm 118, I want to take the opportunity to show not only why we should sing Psalm 118 in worship, but also why all 150 psalms found in the scriptures are not only appropriate for Christian worship, but why they're the only suitable words of praise to offer up to our great God and Savior. And it begins with what God himself has commanded. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our our, uh, confession, our subordinate standards, chapter 21, which is the chapter on worship, the very first paragraph says this, But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and, and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. In other words... We're to worship God only in the way that He Himself has commanded. Now, we call this truth the regulative principle of worship. Instead of using our own imaginations to come up with what we like and what we think would be good or, or cool in worship, we look for God's commands in the scriptures to direct us as to how we're to worship Him. And so, consider these direct commands of scripture that support this principle. The first, of course, is the second commandment. Exodus 20, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, And keep my commandments. If God hasn't commanded it, well we shouldn't do it in worship. Because he's a jealous God. And he's jealous that we worship him according to the way that he has commanded. And we find this drawn out at the beginning of the Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer 109. Which says this, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. And so the second commandment forbids worshiping God in ways that he's not commanded. We find another direct command to this effect in a passage where God... Is telling Moses to warn the people to not fall into idolatry, especially going after the false idol gods of the Canaanites once they entered into the Promised Land, and this is from Deuteronomy chapter 12, and uh, beginning at verse 28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow the practice of the the Canaanites, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which He hates, they have done to their gods." For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Friends, the force of this command is still in effect. Because God doesn't change. That we're not to add to nor take away from what He has commanded as in regards to how we're to worship Him. We see this even as we move to the New Testament. In John uh, chapter 4, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And of course she asks about the, the proper place for worship. And Jesus responds to her. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit And in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, in spirit here refers to a by or according to the Holy Spirit. And the truth is obviously God's revealed truth that He has given to us in His Word. So we're led by the Word, and the Holy Spirit through the Word and how we must worship God. And again, Jesus reminds his disciples in John 14, If you love me, well then you will keep my commandments. Well, that includes the commandments given in the word of God about how we are to worship him. Now along with these direct commandments of God, we can point out some other key biblical principles in support of this um, regulatory principle of worship. And the first being the sovereignty of God, right? That God is sovereignly in control over all things. He's the creator, therefore he uh, has the, the right and the authority to do as he pleases. And so God as God, takes the initiative then in approaching his people. He created mankind, and he was the first to to come to talk with Adam in the garden, entering into a covenant with, with Adam on behalf of all mankind. Adam didn't come to God and say, hey, let's work out a deal. No, God came to Adam. God approached him. God was the one who then set the terms of this covenant. If you obey, you'll live. If you disobey, you'll die. In Romans 9, Paul reminds us that God, as our creator, has mercy on whom he will have mercy. That he's the potter. And we're just the clay. That God is sovereignly, according to his will, his plan, and his purpose, fashions into either a vessel for honor or a vessel for dishonor. Right? That's God's sovereignty. He can do as he pleases. And so because of this... God, as God, takes the initiative in the manner His people are to approach Him. Right? God calls us to worship and we need to respond and come to Him. He's the one who sets the rules and guidelines for how we must come to Him. We can't just make up our own way to come to God. We must look to Him and be directed by what He has given to us. And so in this, we see that really the regulative principle is essentially really the liturgical counterpart to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Paul declares in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. So we see here with salvation, God provides us with the salvation through the work of Christ. He enables us to partake of it through His grace, and He gives us the means to attain it by faith. He's also prepared beforehand, that is, He's predestined what we're to accomplish as a result of His great work in us. And now we can add. That He has graciously told us how to worship Him. And so that our worship, like salvation, is all of God. And He alone receives the glory so that we cannot boast at all. That say, this is a great thing I've done for God. I've uh, done this great thing and worship for God. No. We worship God so that He receives the glory and honor and praise. We're not performing for him and to be praised by men by what we do in worship. We are here to worship the Lord and remember what he has done. Well, a second key principle that supports this regular principle is the holiness of God. And this ties into the truth that God is the one who commands How we are to approach Him. And we have this this passage in Leviticus chapter 10. After the Lord had given Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons. He gave them detailed instructions. About how they were to present their offerings to the Lord. Up through Leviticus chapter 9. That's what it's it's all about. Well, come to chapter 10. The first opportunity. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... We read in verse 1 of chapter 10, Leviticus, They offered profane fire before the Lord. And then here's the important part that follows. Which He had not commanded them. They were doing their own thing. Whether they had good intentions or evil intentions, it doesn't matter. The key point is, They were not doing as God had commanded them. And as a result, God struck them both down. And then listen to what Moses says to Aaron. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Again, God hasn't changed. He's still a most holy God. And so we ought to treat Him as such. And so that all that we offer to Him must be done in truth, in honor, and respect. And that includes offering and worship only what He commands. Because when we approach God in the way that He commands, we're automatically acknowledging His holiness as we're going by what He desires and not what we desire. And so the Ramsey principle of worship along with these general biblical principles gives us the foundation upon which we build our worship practices. A, a foundation that God Himself has given. Well, as we look for positive commands for what to do in worship we see that God commands us to sing psalms. We see this first in direct commands. Uh, for example, Psalm 105. <clears throat> give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing psalms to Him. Talk of all His wondrous works. And so it's a great blessing. That the Lord has given us the songs that we're to use in His worship. So that we can be sure that our praise is all to Him. As we sing of His wonderful works. And that we're not being led astray and singing about ourselves. And seeking to uplift ourselves. Or even worse, singing something that is false teaching. And so we sing what God has given to us. But some may ask, well what about a passage such as Ephesians 5, 18 and 19... Which is this, and and do not be drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And also there's the parallel passage in, in Colossians three sixteen where it says something very similar in using the same words, Psalms and Hymns and Spiritual Songs. Now some would argue that the command here is to yes, we should sing the Psalms of the Bible. And we should also, though, sing hymns written by Christians and even spiritual songs or the praise choruses that are common in many churches today. Friends, is that really what Paul is saying here? Is that how the believers in Ephesus and and Colossae would have understood his words? Well, certainly not. It's very anachronistic to put our understanding of those terms and how we use them today and put them onto the Scriptures. First, note that Paul urges in Ephesians 5 that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Colossians 3, it's, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. So that what comes forth in praise then isn't the words and compositions of men, but it's of the Holy Spirit, even from Christ Himself. It's God's Word that effectively and perfectly teaches and admonishes us in all wisdom, as we not only praise God, but simultaneously as we encourage one another in our time of worship together. Besides, as we saw with the term hymn in Matthew 26, verse 30, this refers not to some man-made composition but to the book of Psalms. In fact, all three of the terms used in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Psalms, hymns, and songs, are found in the book of Psalms, referring to the Psalms themselves. The command then is to sing the Psalms, hymns, and inspired songs that God has given to us in His Word. And that this was the practice of the early church exclusively for the first several centuries is well-established man-made hymns eventually began to to make inroads. And then at the time of the Reformation, the prominence of exclusive psalmody was recovered in practice, especially among Reformed and and Presbyterian bodies. And again, even in those traditions, it's only been in the last 150 years or so that man-made hymns have once again entered into the worship of God. Now hymns may be wonderful songs I mean some are just terrible and they have false teaching and false doctrine but some may be wonderful songs even expressing God's truth but we have no command from God to use those in his worship We're to use what he has given to us in the Psalms. Now along with these commands and principles. We should briefly note. The sufficiency of the Psalter for, for Christian praise. See the Psalms are a part of the Holy Scriptures themselves. Again which God has given. And we know David of course is noted as being the author. The human author of most of the Psalms. He didn't write all of them. But he wrote most of them. But we should ask ourselves. What did David view how did he view the Psalms? Did he view them as his own words? Or as the words of someone else? In 2 Samuel 23, we read this. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. So as David wrote the Psalms, he was well aware that he was, uh, as a prophet of God, writing and singing the words given to him by the Holy Spirit. And since the Psalms are God's inspired words, then Paul's admonition in 2 Timothy 3 applies to the Psalter as it does to the rest of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Paul uses the term all, he means all. All Scripture is inspired, or God-breathed. Thus, thus all is infallibly uh, profitable and useful. The Psalms certainly fit this description. The Psalms speak of things necessary for our spiritual nourishment. Do we read, study, meditate, and, and preach from a novel for our advocation? For our I mean, I know some churches do, sadly. But No. So why then would we sing anything other than the God-given hymn book that He has given to us right in the middle of our Bibles? Beloved of God, this is why we only sing psalms in worship. Well, this then brings us back to Psalm 118 and why it's appropriate for us to sing this psalm and, and again, all the psalms in Christian worship. God has commanded it. And they're perfectly sufficient to feed and nourish us in our faith as we sing them in worship. And again, since Jesus is ultimately the author of the Psalms, they not only speak of him, but Christ himself is the voice singing in the Psalms. Consider the implications of this. That just as Jesus has come to identify with us in our sin and misery, when he came into this world and he took on flesh... We can now identify with Him and sing along with Him through the psalms which He's given. No man made Him can claim to be the very voice of God or express the very thoughts of the Son of God. And so as we come to Psalm 118, that last psalm that Jesus sang with His disciples on that fateful night in which He was betrayed and turned over to be killed... We have the great honor and and privilege of singing along with Jesus and hearing and meditating upon His very thoughts as He approached the cross. And so if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 118 in your Bibles. And I would encourage you, I'm going to kind of read through this and kind of break it up into sections. But I would encourage you at some point, Perhaps later this afternoon or this evening to take some time again and and to really read through and you could read through you know the whole Halal songs beginning at Psalm one thirteen through Psalm one eighteen but but especially Psalm one eighteen. I mean Psalm one sixteen we sang uh, many portions of that last week in connection to the Lord's Supper and there's a lot of strong connections that we made there. But it's sing the Psalm or read through Psalm one hundred eighteen with this particular. Mindset in view. Going with Jesus and his disciples out to the garden, Jesus singing these very words, knowing what is to come in the next several hours. His, the betrayal, his arrest, the abuse, the mockery, his suffering and death on the cross, and even several days later, his resurrection from the dead and power, and glory, and victory. So I want to read first, uh, the first four verses, Psalm 118. Oh, good thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. Well, the first thing we note here is that this is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, giving thanks to God for His goodness and everlasting mercy, His covenant love that endures forever. And that the covenant people of God, the priests, and yes, even all who fear the Lord, including including us, including Christians, we are to praise and give thanks to God for His everlasting mercy toward us. Then verse 5 through 9. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Here Jesus is singing of being distressed. And we'll see that distress becoming uh, with more clarity when he's there in the garden of Gethsemane. But amidst that distress, what will Jesus do? He'll confess to the Heavenly Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Realizing that his Father is with him. In fact, having gaining that confidence, what can man do to him if God the Father is with him? Even knowing that his own disciples are going to scatter. And so he's reminded here that it's certainly better to take refuge in the Lord. Because all men, even his disciples, are going to fail him. And not even Pilate, the the princely governor, is going to be of any use. Verses 10 through verse 14. All nations surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. You push me violently that I might fall, but the Lord help me. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. Even though Jesus was surrounded and rejected by both Jews and Gentiles, all nations, then and certainly even now, He knows that He'll have the ultimate victory. That all those who don't trust in him will one day be cut off in the day of judgment. And that it is his heavenly father who is the one who strengthens him and who will highly exalt him. So that on that last great day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and king of kings. There shall be victory. Verses 15 through 18. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Those who are redeemed... Even us will rejoice at the victory of the cross. They'll once for all will once for all be delivered by the right hand of the Lord. Well, what is the right hand of the Lord? Who sits at the right hand of the Lord? Is it not Jesus Christ Himself? He sits at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly throne even now. And He will deliver us from the enemies. He has already delivered us from the enemies of, of sin and death. And then he sings that he shall not die. Now obviously we know Jesus did die. But we also know that death didn't hold him. Instead he'll be raised from the grave to live and to tell of the salvation of God by the power of of the Holy Spirit. On the cross. When Jesus was there hanging on the cross. He received the severe chastening of the Lord. Not for himself. Not for his sins. But for our sins. And so in singing this portion of the psalm, Jesus would have been greatly comforted by these words of promise. That though he would be severely chastened on the cross, yet he would live. And he does as he rose again from the grave on the third day. And verses 19 through 21. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The gates of righteousness, like the gates of the city that welcomed Jesus on that, during the triumphal entry, and now it will be the gates that lead back to his exalted place at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly realm. And Jesus himself has become the gate now through which the righteous will enter, through which we enter. That no one comes to the Father but through him. Again, thanks is given here to the all-merciful Father for this plan. Then verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is that stone which the builders rejected. He was rejected by the Jewish religious leaders and, and even killed by them. But now again he will be highly exalted and has become the stone which supports the way to the foundation and the building. God is building through Jesus an everlasting temple. And we see the sovereignty of God here that this is the Lord's doing. It's God's plan. It's God's purpose. Just as Peter would proclaim at Pentecost that the Jews killed Jesus, but that this was all according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. That's marvelous in our eyes. It certainly ought to be marvelous in our eyes. Not only the fact that Jesus died for our sins, but this was the perfect plan of God. For our salvation, in verses twenty-four to twenty-seven, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and He has given us a light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. This is, Jesus, as Jesus is saying in this, this is the appointed day of salvation which the Lord has purposed. And Jesus turns His heart to rejoice and be glad in His Father's perfect plan. And truly those who humble themselves before Him, who repent of their sins, can call upon His name alone for salvation and eternal prosperity of life. For Jesus is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. And He is indeed our blessed Redeemer. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is the light of the world. He is the Lamb of God who is offered up as the sacrifice, the once for all perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, knowing what He must accomplish according to the Father's plan, is able to sing. With great resolve and great joy. Finally in verses 28 and 29. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Oh give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Amen. How how true a blessing this is. Brothers and sisters, truly, when we sing this psalm, really, when we sing uh, any psalm of Scripture, we're not only singing about Jesus and the great wonder of salvation that He's accomplished for us, but we are actually singing with Him. Our voices uniting together with His voice, all to the praise and glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for this truth of your word. And we just thank you for the psalms and, and the richness that they contain for us. And how they speak of Christ. How they reveal the thoughts of our Savior and what He endured. And even as we read through this Psalm 118, and we'll sing it shortly. Jesus was singing these words approaching the cross and how he would be enriched and encouraged to go through and to carry out your will and your plan and your purpose not only for his glory and for your glory but for us for the undeserving sinners such as we are that Jesus went to the cross for us and he endured that pain and suffering and death for us. And so that as we now can sing the words of this psalm, we can identify with Jesus and his suffering. But we can also identify with his great hope and his assurance and the certainty as he fulfills your will which is a great comfort to us when we face suffering and affliction. That we would say to you, Lord, deliver us from these things, but not our will, but your will be done. Even as Jesus has prayed, even as he has sung. Father, we just praise you and thank you for these things. And we pray that you would continue to bless these truths to our hearts that Your Spirit would apply them to us, that You would draw us all closer to Yourself, as we give all glory and praise and honor to Your holy name, because You alone are worthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.